0: Take your Bible, if you have a copy, or power it up to Acts chapter 13 this morning. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, then the book of Acts, which is the second volume written by Luke. First comes the Gospel of Luke, and then his narrative of the early church, which is in our Bibles as the book of Acts, and today we're in the 13th chapter of Acts. Let me say a special welcome to those of you who are our guests today. We're really thankful that you're here this morning. Thank you for being a part of us today. Do us a favor and complete a guest registration card if you would. And when church is over, you can visit one of our two information centers, give it to one of those attendants, take home a gift, compliments of our church and let us know if we can be an encouragement to you in any way, shape, or form. We hope to see you back soon and very soon. Well, as we continue in our study of the book of Acts, we once again this morning join our friends Paul Barnabas and their associate John Mark along the way of their first missionary journey. The team has had a very successful and a very fruitful run on their first stop in Barnabas' home country of Cyprus, the island nation of Cyprus, just off of the coast of Syria. But now it's time for them to move on. They've spent time, undefined time, on the island of Cyprus, but they've gone from one end of the island to the other. And now they're ready to get aboard a boat and journey back uh, to the southern part of Asia Minor to continue the journey. And, you know, one of the things that we're going to see uh, in their life is an absolute truth in your life and in mine as well, and that is this truth. The more faithful that we see Paul and Barnabas becoming, the more difficult their journey would become at the same time. Now, that's true if you're living openly for the Lord Jesus Christ. If you claim to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, and nobody's shooting arrows at you, then you may wanna take time and examine the effectiveness of your faith. Because in every corner of the Bible, those who become more faithful in their walk with Christ find that the difficulties tend to mount in their walk with Christ. That will be true. Now, there's always joy in the journey. Nobody likes to go through difficulties. Nobody likes to face challenges. But brothers and sisters, that's where the growth comes from. If you don't get stretched, if you're never challenged in your faith, then I think I can safely say you'll never grow in your faith. If you know Jesus, life is a journey. We talk at Hillcrest about becoming like Christ And that little I-N-G at the end of the word become is very important. We put it there for a reason. Because the only time we ever truly become like Christ is when we're in the presence of Christ forever. When this life is over. And we inherit the kingdom of heaven. And we receive a glorified existence. We shall see him. We shall know him. We shall become like him. But until then, we're in the process of becoming. Life is a journey with Jesus. And with that in mind, I'd like to address from here in Acts chapter 13 some challenges that we'll all tend to face in the gospel journey that we are called to live. There are three of them I'm going to point out from our text this morning. You jot them down, and then I'm going to flesh them out for the next few minutes. The first challenge is this. There's relational conflict in the gospel journey. Don't you wish that wasn't so? Man, don't you wish, as the old songs used to say, that we could just all get along. You know, why does there have to be conflict? Why does there have to be war? Why just can't we all live together and tiptoe through the tulips and sing kumbaya together? Well, one of these days when we get to heaven, we will, but here's the point. We're not living in heaven. We're living in a fallen, broken, contaminated, corrupted place called the world. And the world is broken. It's messed up. And even though we've been redeemed, and even though we are men and women who belong to Christ, we still drag around a body of sin. We're still broken, and we're still fallen, and we're still fallible. Conflict is just an inevitable part of all human relationships. Every marriage has conflict. Those of you who have been married for a particular period of time, if it has any distance to it at all, you know that your relationship is marked by conflict. You can't live with somebody and not have conflict. I'm amazed at these people. Whenever I say that, somebody comes up to me and says, Pastor, we've been married 42 years, never had a cross word. Liar, liar, pants on fire. I don't believe it. I do not believe it. You can't live with somebody and not experience occasional conflict. Every parent-child relationship is marked by occasional conflict, even the best of them. All close friendships marked by conflict. And this may come as a shock to you, I'm sure, but even God's people experience conflict in the family of God from time to time. And it didn't take long for conflict to raise its ugly head with this first missionary tandem. It's in verse 13, Acts 13, 13. That's a lot of 13s. You all remember the television show, The Munsters? They lived at 1313 Mockingbird Lane. And this is Acts 13, 13. And it's a bad deal. Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. John, of course, being John Mark. We know him as Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark, which means he eventually landed well. He grew up. He matured. He himself was on a journey of becoming like Christ. But something happened. There, between the ministry on Cyprus and the time that the team landed in Pamphylia. Something happened and we don't know what it was. The team had left Barnabas' home country of Cyprus. We're gonna show you the map again this morning. I'll be using them because I think it's helpful to help us get a geo-positioning pinpoint to put a push pin in the map to know where these people are at the time. And there you can see the first missionary journey of Paul. It's a simple one. Basically, it involves two places, Cyprus, South Galatia. It's a Galatian tour fundamentally, though they originally leave from Antioch in Syria on the far right side of the map, sail to Cyprus, which was Barnabas' home country, probably why they went there first. And then on foot, they traverse the entirety of the island from east to west, culminating in the passage we looked at last week, that marvelous story of the leading of Sergius Paulus to faith in Christ there at Paphos, the seat of the Roman government on Cyprus. And then their time in Cyprus coming to a conclusion, the Spirit leads them further north. They leave Barnabas, his home country, and they go back to the southern part of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, which was the apostle Paul's home country. And they land at Italia, the port city, and then take the 12-mile journey on foot to Perga. And it's at Perga, for whatever reason, Mark throws up his hands and says, I'm out of here, and he gets aboard a boat back at Italia and goes all the way back to Jerusalem where he was from. And this has become one of the great mysteries of the Bible. Why did he leave? I don't know, and neither do you. Man, we take up time in Sunday school classes, small groups. I want to know why he left, but we don't know. Maybe he was sick, some say. Couldn't handle the intensity of the travel. Maybe he was upset because of the change of leadership. Mark was related to Barnabas, and up to this point, for a long time, it had been Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul. Now it's Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas, and maybe he was upset that Paul had taken the leadership role. Some have suggested that he, as a good conservative Jew, really wasn't all about Paul's thrust to the Gentiles. He just hadn't gone all in yet. And so he was upset that Paul seemed to be thinking past the salvation of the Jews, wanting to take the gospel to the Gentiles. We simply don't know. I think the simplest explanation this is a young man, and he's just not ready for the journey. He's not ready for the big time yet. I think that's what the deal is. We call it homesickness, and he probably was. He probably was missing the creature comforts of home. This is hard work they're engaging in. This is difficult stuff. There's conflict, and he's probably not dealing with the conflict as a young man very well. Paul knew how to rough it up. He'd been roughing it up his whole life with people. But not this young man. So for whatever reason, I mean, those of us who have traveled in in every time just about, at least from my perspective, traveling is always more romantic and exciting when you're planning it than when you're doing it. I mean, all travel looks good when you're looking at color brochures from AAA. AAA. Then you start airport hopping and you have your luggage being lost and you get seasick and, and you miss a flight and you have to spend overnight somewhere and you can't communicate, whatever the case might be. Every trip that I ever go on, whether it's personal or professional or whatever, there always comes a time where when I leave, I'm ready to be gone for 30 days, man, and about three days in, I'm ready for my own bed and mama's home cooking. Can I have an Amen. That's probably what's going on here, though we cannot be for sure. We're not done with John Mark. We're going to come back to him at the end of Acts chapter 15 when it's time to begin a second missionary journey. And when we get there in just a few weeks, I'm going to spend more time talking about conflict and particularly how a believer should approach conflict, handle conflict, and look like Christ within conflict. But for today... We simply want to mention that as we journey in this gospel journey called discipleship along with the Lord Jesus Christ, we're going to engage in inevitable conflict as we move forward in the journey. That will not change. But not only is there relational conflict in the gospel journey, secondly, there's physical difficulty, physical and emotional difficulty in the gospel journey but here we see kind of the physical dimension of the journey that's difficult particularly for the missionary tandem because in spite of the sudden departure Paul and Barnabas they stay true to the course they keep moving north they don't stop they're not going to quit and we champion them for that They leave the region of Pamphylia in the southern part of Asia Minor, and they move to the area really where I think Paul's sites were actually set, which is uh, the Roman colony of South Galatia. He's going to visit four churches there. They were highlighted on the map, or four cities rather. We highlighted them on the map. He's going to stop at Pisidian Antioch which is really Galatian Antioch. It was right on the border of South Galatia and Pisidia. It's called Pisidian Antioch, but it was more of a Galatian city than it was a Pisidian city. Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe, those are the four primary centers of South Galatia that this team is going to visit. And verse 14 tells us that Paul and Barnabas went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. Not the same Antioch from whence they came in Syria. The church at Antioch was in Syria. This is Antioch in Pisidia, a totally different Antioch. That's where they are now. And we're not told why they pushed north to Antioch. But Paul was probably in a hurry to get there. They're on an upward climb, literally, because when they land at Perga, they're on the coast. Now, we live in a coastal city about 30 miles north of the coast. What's the weather like outside today? Hot, steamy, muggy, humid, same over there. And they're going to go up, and in that jaunt that takes them from Perga to Antioch, they're going to literally ascend 3,500 feet in elevation. Highlands, the Galatian highlands. And what's the weather like when they get up there? Breezy, cool, cool. Now, why is that a big deal? Well, I think it's a big deal to Paul because while some have suggested that John Mark left them because he was ill, one thing we can know for sure, others have suggested that he left because Paul was ill. And here's one thing we know. Everybody with me? Say amen. Paul was ill. Paul was sick. He was a sick man. And we know that. Because what's going to be the first letter that the Apostle Paul writes as contained in our Bible? It's the letter to the Galatians. The first letter he writes is going to be to the four churches that he founded on his first missionary journey. And what does he say? Well, in Galatians 4, beginning in verse 13, you know that it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, You did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. If possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me, which suggests the man was having an eye problem of some type. But I think that was a symptom. I don't think that was the disease. Personally, I think he had malaria. Most scholars do as well. It was rampant in that part of the world. And what do we know about malaria? The symptoms come, and the symptoms what? Go. They come, they raise their ugly head for a while, hang around for a while, knock you down for the count, and then the symptoms go away for a while. And they also have this tendency to provide to the person that's stricken by them, raging fevers. That may explain why I wanted to get to high ground. Get me out of this humid climate. Get me to a cooler climate. And that may have also uh, explained some of the eye problems that he was having as well. Bottom line is, we really don't know. What we do know is that this was probably the thorn in the flesh that Paul writes about in 2 Corinthians 12. This troubled him his entire, from this point forward to the rest of his life, Paul had to deal with these physical ailments. You say, well, Pastor, why are you bringing all that up? Because it has everything to do with you as much as it has to do with him because the last time I checked, we inhabit the same kind of bodies that tend to wear out, groan, and creak the older that we get. I mean, we face, we have to learn to overcome physical hardship when it comes to being faithful in ministry and faithful in spiritual growth. Paul talks about this all through his ministry, Second Corinthians 5. For while we live in this tent, this tent of a body, We groan and are burdened, longing to be unclothed with the difficulties of the flesh, not to be found naked, but to be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. That's Paul referring to the bondage of the flesh and the frailty of the body he's groaning, he's under burden. he's longing to take off the flesh and put on the glorified resurrection body of the Lord Jesus Christ, which he so looked forward to, and which we look forward to as well. And see, it's that understanding of that future dimension that we're always going to be us, even in heaven. I'm going to be Jim in heaven, and you're going to be you in heaven, but we'll have a different kind of body, and the body does not groan, the body does not snap, crackle, pop, the body does not creak, the body does not grieve, the body does not go into disease. We'll have a perfect existence. We'll be us only without the flaws. Can I have an amen? And Paul looked forward to that. But here's what's important. He couldn't change anything about that, this side of heaven. And he didn't quit. He didn't stop. See, some people go through physical difficulties and they get mad at God. They shake their fist at God. They get angry with God the more they groan and the more the body becomes a burden. We don't think we deserve the suffering. We don't see the point of the difficulty. We're frustrated that life has handed us a bowl of sour grapes rather than a bed of roses. There's a lot of false teaching going on in the world today that basically says, hey, just come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll never suffer again. You'll never have pain. You'll never have a grievous moment in all of life. And if you do, it's your fault. You just don't have enough faith. There's a Greek word for that, hokum, Poppycock. It's not true. And Paul's life, this super apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, lived his entire ministry slash missionary life groaning. And other under physical burden. But he didn't go dark. And he didn't lay low as so many people do when they experience the same thing. Because God doesn't call us when we're under oppression to go dark or to stay low. Our Lord Jesus tells us to press on. That's what he tells us to do. Keep going. Don't give up. Don't lose heart. For you will reap a harvest if you stay the course. Charles Haddon Spurgeon battled depression almost all of his entire ministry and mission uh, and, and uh, ministry and vocational preaching life, but he never stopped preaching. Fanny Crosby was blind, but she never stopped writing hymns. Johnny Erickson Tata suffered paralysis, but she never stopped giving witness to Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis suffered incredible grief when his wife died of cancer, but he never stopped writing. John Bunyan, who wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, was bound in Bedford's jail, but never stopped giving glory to Christ and preached to whoever would listen to him outside of the prison walls. And the Apostle Paul likely suffered raging fevers, powerful headaches, poor eyesight, but he kept climbing those gospel heights right on to Jesus Christ, and you should too. Now, once they get there to Pacinia, to Antioch, Paul and Barnabas, they went straight to work. First taking the gospel to the Jews like they had on Cyprus. They went to the synagogue first and had an immediate audience, an immediate opportunity for Paul to open up his mouth and preach. And we see that here in verse 14. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning, With his hand, this is how I know he's a Baptist preacher. He's using his hands to talk. Can I have an amen? Motioning with his hand, he opened up his mouth and said. And what he said results in and reveals a third challenge to those of us who consistently witness to the gospel along the gospel journey, and that is that there's a variety of response in the gospel journey. There's relational conflict in the gospel journey. There is physical challenge in the gospel journey. There's a variety of response to your life lived in Jesus Christ on the gospel journey. Paul's going to clearly share the gospel here. And just as it was, we, we talked some about this last Sunday Just as it was when they preached in Cyprus, there was a variety of response, right? And it's almost identical to the kind of audience that he had in Cyprus. First of all, we see some welcomed the message. Some welcomed the message, and they wanted to hear more. Verse 42, as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. So there were some who welcomed the message. They wanted to know more. Inviting them back, come speak to us again. That's what you like to hear. Others crossed the line of faith without a doubt. They believed the message and they rejoiced in the message. That's verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And then there were those, of course, who were openly hostile to the message. And you'll have that happen to you too as you live for Jesus, talk up Jesus. Share Christ with others. There are some who won't want to hear the message. Maybe even being crude or curt or openly angry about it. That's verse 45. But when the Jews saw the crowds, not all of the Jews, because many of these Jews wanted them to come back, but there were a section of them, a section of the Jewish leadership there, those who were most zealous for the law, and who would be most offended by a gospel of grace where the law was minimized rather than lionized? When the Jews, those Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. Allied like with Jesus. That's what happened to him. Filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. means they really didn't like him. Verse 50, the Jews, those Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. Man, it's one thing for people to say, I think what you've just told us is a bunch of hooey. Boy, it's another thing when they pick up axe handles and rocks. You know what I mean? Man, that takes opposition to a new level. And they just drove them completely out of the district. And what was it? Here's what we see the response, and I do this on purpose. I took you to the response to the end of the passage first because now that brings us back to the question, why all the variety? What was it that Paul said when he opened up his mouth that caused such controversy, such a diversity of response? It was Jesus That's all in the world it was. All the man had to do was open up his mouth. Have you ever had that happen? Let me tell you what. If you want to get a reaction at a party, Christmas party, retirement party, whatever the case might be, everybody's talking about Alabama football, Florida State baseball. Everybody's talking about Southeastern Conference. Everybody's talking about the weather, talking about fishing. You just jump in the middle of that, say, hey, who wants to talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ? And see what kind of reaction you get. Now, they're probably not going to throw rocks at you, but they're probably going to walk away. A good number of them will. It was the name of Jesus. He tells them the simple but profound story of Christ. How many of you in the house today remember the old hymn, Tell Me the Story of Jesus? Tell me the story of Jesus. Write on my heart every word. Tell me the story most precious, sweetest that ever was heard. That's what it becomes to a believer, but it's not always that way to those who don't yet believe. This is the most important sermon of the Apostle Paul in the Bible outside of his writings. He's sermonic in many of his letters, but as it relates to Acts, like Peter's Pentecost sermon, I think the most important sermon in the history of the church, Certainly Peter's most important sermon, this becomes Paul, Paul's Pisidian Antioch Sermon. The book of Acts is pockmarked by sermons. It revolves around what's sometimes referred to as the sermonic material of Acts. Peter's Pentecost sermon. Peter's sermon at the temple courts in Acts chapter 4. Stephen's sermon to the Sanhedrin in Acts chapters 7 and 8. The Apostle Paul's sermon at Pisidian Antioch. The Apostle Paul's sermon on Mars Hill to the Athenian philosophers and governmental leaders. Paul's addresses to the government officials in Acts chapters 20 and following. All of these are what really Luke uses to move his entire narrative in the gospel or in the book of Acts. And this becomes Paul's most important and most complete sermon that we have recorded. It's a thoroughgoing gospel sermon, but it's Jewish all the way through. It's a synagogue sermon. He's in the synagogue. He's got a Jewish audience. There may be a few Gentiles there, but they're God-fearing Gentiles. They're monotheistic Gentiles that worship one God. And it was Jewish in tone. I don't have time to read it all. I wish I did, but it's lengthy. You read it later, and you can tell what I'm talking about here. Paul was a master of what we call contextualization, reading his audience. And every good speaker does that. You've got to know to whom you're speaking in order for whatever it is you're saying to fall on hearts that are willing to receive it. I had an example of that just even today for that matter. Last Thursday in this very room I had a few hundred children in here from kindergarten, first grade all the way up to fifth grade. And I shared the gospel with them. I can guarantee you what I shared with them on Thursday doesn't sound anything like what I'm sharing in here today. And what I'm share, I shared with them, I'm not sharing in here today because it's two different audiences. You don't share the gospel with a Muslim the same way that you would share it with a southern boy from Atlanta who'd been raised in Sunday school, but hadn't yet received Christ as Savior. You have to approach it completely differently, and if you read Paul's sermon in Acts 17 to the Athenian philosophers who were thoroughgoing pagans, it doesn't sound anything like this sermon, not even close. The subject is the same. It's all about Jesus, but the way he frames it, totally different. So this is a Jewish sermon fundamentally, and it's pitch perfect in terms of how it reflects The gospel, it focuses on Jesus and it makes much of Jesus in three dimensions. Write this down. The first thing that it does is open his sermon by revealing that Jesus is the climax of all human history. All of human history climaxed with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. What's the high watermark of all recorded history? The coming to earth of God in the flesh. Nothing is more important that has ever happened than the coming to earth of Jesus Christ. Beginning in verse 17, Paul begins his message the same way Stephen begins his, back in Acts chapter 7 and 8. He gives this narrative history of the nation of Israel. We don't have time to read it all because he covers everything. This is how many of you are familiar with Cliff Notes? Right? The summaries of the big five and six hundred and a thousand page books. And some of y'all read the Cliff Notes rather than reading the books when you're in school. Okay, well what we have here is the Cliff Notes version of the whole Old Testament, beginning in verse seventeen. He talks about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the Jewish patriarchs. He talks about the Exodus. He mentions Moses. He mentions the conquest of the promised land under Joshua. He mentions the leadership of the judges. And then he comes to the beginning of the monarchy of Israel, the kings of Israel. And when he gets to David, he stops. This history that he tells starts with Abraham and goes as far as David, but that's as far as he gets. And why is that important? Because David serves as the on-ramp for Paul to begin to talk about Jesus because Jesus was descended from the line of David. So he gets to David and he stops. Verse 23 is the key verse of the whole introduction of the sermon. Of this man's offspring, David's offspring, God has brought to Israel a what? Say it out loud. A Messiah. Jesus. Just as he promised. So what Paul's doing here is basically saying to everybody in the room, Everybody that was still looking for the Messiah, the anointed one of God to come. He says to all of those who were familiar with the Old Testament that all of their past had been about the coming of Christ. And it all pointed to Jesus. Leviticus pointed to Jesus. Exodus pointed to Jesus. Genesis pointed to Jesus. The history pointed to Jesus. The prophets pointed to Jesus. The prophetic material, the wisdom literature, all of it pointed to Jesus Christ. And they missed it. And Paul wants these people, all of whom revered the law and the prophets, the Old Testament of God, he wants them to understand. Listen, guys, here's what's important. If you fail to understand Jesus Christ as your promised Messiah to whom your whole Bible points, then you fail to understand the Scriptures at all. Because the Scriptures can't be interpreted apart from Christ. They all point to him. So that's how he starts. Christ is the climax of all human history. Then he gets into the body of his sermon, the main point of his sermon. And we learn, secondly, that not only is Jesus the climax of human history, but secondly, Paul teaches that Jesus is Lord because of his resurrection victory. This is the main point that he's trying to make, and it begins in verse 26. This will be the longest passage that we read this morning. Acts 13 and 26. Everybody ready to read? Say amen. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, those who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news, the gospel, that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. Now you should know by now, That whether it be in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, Caesarea, Antioch, or wherever it may be in the book of Acts, the focus of the preaching and the teaching of the early church was on one thing, one thing, one thing the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's what they focused on. In fact, the whole ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ is summarized right here in this text. You have a reference to coming of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the burial of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, and the appearance of Jesus to eyewitnesses. All right there. And Paul will later write the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians 15, and give to them a summary essence of what the teaching of the apostles in the early church was all about, what our Christian conviction is all about. 1 Corinthians 15, for I submit unto you, that which I preach, which is of first importance, that Christ died according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to many witnesses. 1 Corinthians 15. And you find every bit of that right here in what we just read. So, man, he's preaching the heart of the gospel message that focuses fundamentally on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's what caused all the fuss. See, it was the preaching about resurrection that brought about conflict then. It still does today. But yet at the same time, it was also preaching about resurrection that brings people to Jesus Christ. So it both causes conflict and brings about unity at the same time. And the resurrection is important. Why? Because it verified everything Jesus claimed to be. He claimed to be God. Claimed to be God in the body, God in the flesh. I and the Father are one, Jesus said. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. He claimed to be God in every respect, and the resurrection is what proves it. He didn't stay dead. See, the Jews believed that anybody that hung on a tree was cursed. That's what the Bible says in the Old Testament. And so they look at Paul and they say, well, what are you talking about, a guy dying on the cross? That guy is cursed. How can that guy be the Messiah? And here's the deal. They were right. He was cursed when he died on the cross. He bore your sin when he died on the cross. He bore my sin. He bore the sin of the whole world. Yes, he died a cursed death. But you know what the difference making part of his existence. He didn't stay dead. He didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead. And that's what makes all the difference in the world because the resurrection is proof that Jesus Christ is Lord. You can't very well be a liar if you rose from the dead. You can't be a liar if you appeared to all these people. You can't be a liar if you sat down with them after you were certifiably dead and eat with them and fellowship with them for a month and a half afterwards. No, the resurrection is the game changer. It proves that Jesus is Lord. He's the climax of human history. He's the Lord because of his resurrection victory. And then finally, what does that have to do with me? Jesus is the source of your eternal destiny. The personal application of the message begins in verse 38. You see, the gospel isn't just good news because of what Jesus has done. The gospel is good news because of what Jesus has done for you. That's what makes it good news. Not just that he did it, but that he did it for you. Verse 38, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by this man, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses every good sermon has a what a so what and a now what and this is the so what so Jesus is the climax of human history so Jesus died and was buried and rose from the grave that's the what but so what And that's what Paul focuses on right here. It has everything to do with you because the death and resurrection of Jesus is a gift to you because it provides something that it alone can provide, something that you desperately need that you have to have if you're ever to have any hope of connecting with God. And you know what that is? The one thing that you desperately need more than anything else is to be forgiven of your sins. Because sin is what separates you from God. All have sinned, isn't that right? And so if you're going to have any hope to connect with a God who is sinless and holy, then you better have something that enables your sinful condition to be removed. And that's what the death and resurrection of Christ does. Through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. It's the only way to be freed from the bondage of sin. Only way to be freed from the guilt of sin. Only way to be freed from the stain of sin. The only way for God to look at you and say, you know what? Sin has rendered you guilty, but because of your trust in Jesus Christ, I declare you not guilty. See, these Jews in that synagogue needed to hear that because they were leaning against the law to do all of that, and it was powerless to help them. Say they revered the law. They were looking to the law. Just keep the law. The only problem was they were unaware they couldn't even do it. The only thing the law can do is further drive the guilt of your life deeper into your life by revealing to you how incapable, utterly incapable you are of even remotely keeping it. Because nobody's that good. Sin's messed us up that bad. the only thing in the world the law can do is reveal how desperate you are for somebody to save you. Trying to keep the Ten Commandments never saved anybody. Y'all ever heard somebody say that? Oh, I just live by the Ten Commandments and the Sermon on the Mount. Right. How's that working for you, brother? You can't do that. It's impossible for you to do that. That's why you need a Savior. That's why God sent His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. The law couldn't save them then, can't save you now. Are you all still with me? Say amen. Neither can your good intentions. Neither can the money you give for noble causes. Neither can working at the soup kitchen or helping a neighbor out in need. None of those things, worthy though they may be and good though they may be, are good enough to curry favor with a holy God. Your baptismal certificate can't do it. Your church membership at this or any other church can't do it. The Bible says that all of these things and anything remotely similar to them are nothing more than a pile of filthy, stinking, rotten, rejected rags in the presence of a holy God. The only thing that matters is what you do with Christ and his gospel. Because apart from Jesus, there is no good news. For by grace are you saved through faith. The greatest need of your life is the need to be forgiven of your sins and the need to be freed from your sins. And Paul makes it very clear. Through him and by him can you be delivered from all that separates you from God. That means Jesus is your only hope, which is a message that people still to this day respond to in a variety of ways. Some hear that, they want to know more. Some hear that, and they get angry and hostile, storm away. And others receive it, and they welcome it. And they believe, and their lives are changed for an eternity. The question on the table today is how will you respond to the gospel? Or to put it more directly, what will you do with Jesus Christ? This is God's word and all God's people said, amen.